Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So we're up to number 15. Hopefully, 15 can be good because the news is all bad. One of my kids stayed home <laughs> from school. I did not win the chili cook off at work. I'm very disappointed. Oh, rough week. <laughs> I know. But, I spent but you're, 30 you're bucks prob- on chili. But you're probably still doing better than Travis Kalanick this week. Yeah, although I don't, he doesn't strike me as a person who's terribly self-aware. Maybe he thinks he's doing great all the time. Yeah, could be. They, they but uh, we'll, 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 come, we'll, come, we'll come back to Travis a little later in the show. Yeah, we have a couple of things to talk about beforehand. Um, but it's it's a good time to, to just tee up, like, if you're ready for stories of, uh, you know, corporate espionage. Yeah. Buckle up. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, something far, far less exciting. Uh, Sam, we're going to talk about what we're driving. And I know what you're driving is the Camry Hybrid. Yes. For for those people who find the uh, Lexus ES300H uh, just a little bit too ostentatious for their tastes, um, Toyota also makes the Camry Hybrid, which is mechanically identical, um, but um, even, you know, Slightly less interesting. It is a complete ball of fire. <laughs> uh, actually, no, that'd be really bad. Yeah. Um, the, no, it's not so, a Samsung. <laughs> the thing about the Camry Hybrid that I've noticed, at least of the last couple that I've driven, is that it's the best driving Camry. Yeah, actually, it, it's actually quite nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we tease, you know, uh, because, you know, Camrys have traditionally been... Um, somewhat derided in the automotive press as the the uh rolling definition of beige and in fact um the car i'm driving is in fact beige um but uh it's actually not a bad car to drive you know just just as with the es you know that you had last week or the week before um you know i mean there's there's nothing inherently wrong with it you know it's not it's not exciting um but you know it, it does fine yeah, well, it's not meant to be exciting. It's meant to do everything and just stay the hell out of the way. And it's it's brilliant at that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's roomy. You know, it's got plenty of room for a family. Um, you know, room for room for three in the back seat. Um, 
you know, decent trunk space. The, the one thing that you do give up uh, when you go with the hybrid is because the battery is, uh, or at least part of the battery is up against the, um, the back of the rear seat. Uh, you don't get to fold down the rear seat. So there's no pass through. Uh, so if you have long objects uh, to carry, you're going to be pretty much out of luck. Uh, you're restricted to whatever will fit into the the space in the trunk behind the battery. But other than that, um, you know, it, there's, you're not really giving anything up relative to any other Camry. Only your sort of your, your distinct sense of individuality and, uh, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, again, if, you're, if, you're dri- if you're driving a Camry, you're not really expressing any individuality anyway. You know, I mean, it's, it's just a car that's going to, be very reliable. It's going to get you where you need to go, do it very efficiently. You know, I mean, this thing's getting about, you know, 34, 35 miles per gallon. Um, it, you know, it's going to do what you need it to do when you need to do it. Um, yeah, and I, that's kind of what I found about the the hybrid, the ES anyway, was like, no matter what I did, I got 32 to 35 miles per gallon. Like I could leave it idling in the driveway for a couple of hours and still it would just... No matter what I did, it, it I could not get it under thirty miles per gallon. Well, you just weren't trying hard enough. Well, I, yes, I'm sure that I could have been a little bit more determined. Um, but it, yeah, it's I mean it's a good all over all around car, and that's from where we've come or from you know where we've been with with hybrids not too long ago. You know, I mean, I, I guess almost twenty years ago now, a little more than twenty years ago. Yeah, actually, uh, this this ones. year marks the twentieth anniversary of the the launch of the original Prius in Japan. Yeah. So from that, you know, we get a car that's just pretty much, pretty much normal. Um, that's, that's hard to do. And, 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 you know, the, the thing about, you know, hybrids today, I mean, it used to be, you know, some of the earlier hybrids, um, you know, when they did their engine shut off, you could feel it shutting off. You'd feel a shutter when the engine shut down and when it restarted and modern hybrids like the, the Camry and most other modern hybrids for that matter. Um, you know, it's it's a completely seamless um, drive. You know, you unless you're looking down at the gauge, um, you know, that, that tells you, you know, what what the drive, the current driving mode is. You're never really going to notice whether it's you're running on electricity alone or blended power or all engine. It's just uh, it, it all just blends together. So which model do you have? Do you have the LE, the SE or the XLE? It's the SE. So that's interesting because that's kind of like the sporty Camry, right? It's the SE, so they've they've made a sporty-ish uh, hybrid. You know, yeah, it's uh, it's got it's got a little lip spoiler along the trailing edge of the the trunk lid. Um, you know, it's got some nice looking wheels on it. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's yeah, you know, it's actually the the current generation Camry is actually um, especially since they did the the refresh the mid the mid cycle refresh a couple of years ago is actually not a bad looking car. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's surprisingly stylish. In fact, well, you know, yeah, I mean, it gets knocked. I think part of the reason why it gets knocked is just because there's so many of them. Uh, you know, I remember being a kid, those late colonnade Cutlass Supremes, which sold like uh, an ungodly amount per year, uh, were just everywhere. So they just, they became part of the scenery. They blended in. Uh, that's what happens with the Camry too. But when you look at it, it's. And it has been for for as long as I I think as long as I've been writing about cars, the Camry has had a a rather expressive design. It it hasn't been groundbreaking, but it hasn't been ugly or boring either. It's it's good to look at. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, the last the last couple generations of Camry are are actually pretty decent 
uh, in terms, you know, from a design perspective. Um, you know, I guess I'm probably, you know, I'm not thrilled about the the direction that Toyota has gone in general with their their big grill look, um, their, their big trapezoidal grill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and that's you know that that's something that applies to all of the current generation of Toyotas, but aside from that, you know, there's not a whole lot else to complain about with the design. Yeah, well, and the one thing that really bugs me about a lot of hybrids is how mushy they are, and the SE with its sport suspension is probably a little better. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it it's, it feels fairly pinned down. You know, it doesn't it doesn't feel mushy. It doesn't have the the leaden feel of earlier uh, Priuses. Um, you know, so it's, it's reasonably lively. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you're not, you know, you're not going to mistake this for say, um, a Ford fusion sport, um, or, or a, even a Mazda six, you know, any Mazda six, uh, yeah. but you know, it, it's, it is what it is. Or even a, you know, fusion energy or, or something. You know, that's, I guess that's the question I get for my, for myself is like, I step outside the camera and I'm like, could I could I own this? Could, could I make this as a, like a conscious choice? How do, how do you feel about that? Do you think you could deal with that? No, no. Right. <laughs> well, uh, and you know, it's, it's not, it's not because it's a Camry. Right. Uh, it's just, it, it's more um, for me, you know, for cars. Um, I think uh, generally I prefer to have a hatchback uh, yep. or a station wagon in a car. Um, you know, so I, I tend to shy away from sedans anyway. Um, you know, and if I'm, if I'm going to go with something that isn't a, a hatchback or, a, or a, a wagon, then I'm going to go probably for a coupe of some kind. So, um, it's just, you know, the, the cam, you know, it's not just the Camry, but any, any midsize sedan, uh, is not going to be what I'm going to be inclined to buy. That's fair. I mean, you know, you. What am, what, am, what am I going to say? You, you, you're spending the money. You make the decision for yourself. That's right. It is my money. Yeah. You know, the, so, you know, and since there aren't there aren't really any more uh, station wagons available to buy in the American market because nobody else wants them besides me, apparently, um, you know, that leaves me with hatchbacks. Yeah. Well, that leaves me with uh, the car I'm driving this week. Unless you have more to say about the Camry, we can move on because we now let's move on about that hardware. Um, so I had the Honda Civic Sport. Or, let's see. Let me get get it right. Honda Hatch. Honda, Honda Civic, Civic Hatch Sport. Sport. Yes. In Sonic Gray, which looks great. Um, I really don't have anything bad to say about this car, partially because it, it wasn't loaded up with all of the typical Honda uh, tech. So. I hate their their button free like or single knob touchscreen thing that they have in a lot of their cars now or all of their cars. Uh, this had like the base model radio, so it had no nav. Um, <laughs> it's great. It's fantastic. It's easy to use. There's no bright ass screen and no stuff that's like hard to find buried in menus. Um, no, I, I like the Civic Hatch a lot in the Sport. You could argue the Sport is a little bit overdone with the way it's styled. Um, I thought it looked great. Uh, I might get tired I, of I it agree. after a little while, but uh, you know, you only go through life once. There are Do times. You have the manual or a CVT? I had the manual. Yeah. So that's the other thing too. Um, it completely made me change my mind about that small turbo engine. The last time I had the 1.5 liter, uh, it was hooked up with the CVT, and I just I didn't really like that combo. Um, this engine with the manual 
uh, a it doesn't feel like it's turbocharged. It just it it's very linear, um, and it it's very well matched, and I like it quite a bit. And it's it's very flexible and has plenty of power. Um, the one real criticism I can kind of make is is the, and this is a lot of cars with manual transmissions now um, because of the electronic throttles and the way they're programmed for emissions controls it, it's very difficult in some cars to drive the manual smoothly because it's doing something for you <laughs> and like yeah. it's it's adjusting the throttle and it's and I did find that like the clutch take-up point was a little bit hard to discern um, but I can't, that's that's about it. That's about all I can criticize um, from from the Civic. It's overall, it's it's really good, and it made me miss the CRX, but only a little bit because this is sort of some of that CRX attitude with uh, the benefit of a back seat and four doors and all of the modernity that comes with it. If yeah, I you wanted, know, you know, okay, you, know you know what's one of the the interesting features about uh, the Civic hatchback that I've never seen in any other car is you know most most compact hatchbacks um you usually get uh, a cargo cover in the back you know that goes when you uh open up the rear the tailgate um it it's usually uh hanging off the tailgate and it lifts up with the tailgate um in the Civic hatchback it it doesn't the the cargo cover doesn't go up and in fact in, instead of being hinged right behind the seats uh it's it, it stays in place, but um, when you release it, it actually retracts across from left to right and basically retracts into the side of the cargo bay, huh. uh, which is is actually really cool because it, for those times, you know, the, sometimes I mean, one of the reasons why I like to have hatchbacks is, or, or wagons is to have that extra utility when I need to carry large stuff, you know, bring stuff home from the big box store or, or you know, from the farmer's market or whatever it might be. Or those um, like three boxes of paper that you took home from the office or was that just me? That, I think that was just you since yeah. I work in a home office. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you got to print out some what, school papers. Hey, you know? Whatever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you need to carry large stuff and, you know, then you got to pull out that uh, that cargo cover and you got to stash it somewhere. Right. And, you know, there's nowhere to stash it in the car. Well, this, this, the, the Civic designers thought of that, you know, so you just unhook it from the left and it just retracts back across into the, the right side of the car or the right side of the cargo bay. That's evidence of Honda being a Honda that they they've always done that they've always the kind of looked attention at, to detail yeah and they've they've said you know what maybe there's a better way and they're they're bringing a, I think a little bit more of that back to the market than they had over the last few years you know the new Ridgeline is certainly completely full of that Honda think uh, in a in a good way um, and that's you know those little details they they look weird at first or like, well, why'd they do it like that? Everybody else does it another way. And then you use the thing and you go, well, of course it's that way because it's better. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, but I, re I really liked the civic hatch to the point where, um, uh, you know, I talked to, on Twitter with uh, uh, Chris Pockert about this a little bit. Uh, we had a little bit of back and forth where he was saying, you know, I like the civic hatch, the, the civic sport hatch, but y you know, how does it stack up against, say the Mazda three. And, and I'm not really sure now. Um, you know, I judged my experience previously off the sedan and I would definitely pick a Mazda three over a civic sedan, especially with the CVT. The, the sport hatch is, is a different thing. Um, 
you know, they, there's certainly different flavors, but this it drives really well. It's it's not quite as quiet as I'd like, but you know, I'm old and I like luxury, and the Mazda is not going to be quite as quiet either. Um, the the shifter feels good. All the controls are good. You know, it's uh, it's lively. It's it's uh, you know handles really well. So all of the things that we expect out of a, a Honda, if you've ever spent any time in in an older you know the Prelude back in the day and and stuff, it'll it'll remind you of that as well, uh, in in the best of ways. So um, I, I'm I'm really fond of this car. I am too. So I'm buying one next right, week. I was to the point of you actually spent your money. So this is <laughs> one not, that you but can But not a sport. Picture. We're not getting a sport, though. How different is it when it's not the sport? Like, uh, Well, the, the sport um, basically is it, it's, it's essentially the uh, base LX trim level, but with larger 18-inch wheels and um, some of the, the lower body uh, extensions. So you get the front splitter and the, the sill extensions. Uh, and that's basically it that that uh, distinguishes the sport from the LX. So, you know, you, you get the, the basic radio, uh, no sunroof, things like that. Yeah. Uh, so the one we're going to get is the, is an EX model, which is the next trim level up. So uh, the sport is only available on the hatchback. You can't get it on the sedan. Uh, the EX is the next trim level up. Uh, so you get things like heated seats and the, um, um a sunroof and we're getting it with the honda sensing package which is the driver assist package so you get lane keeping and uh adaptive cruise control on there nice and that's like what is that what does that ring up i'm trying to figure out this is the thing with honda when they send out a press car they'll send the sticker but it won't ever have any price on it right so <laughs> like uh, uh the, the sport is actually the sport with the manual transmission is actually surprisingly um inexpensive uh it's only like i think it's like 21 and change um and then uh the ex the one we're gonna get which is the ex um with the honda sensing and also the cvt is about 24 5 that's so i guess i've got to recalibrate my my thinking too like i feel like these cars start to get pricey when they push past 22 but it's not uncommon you could you could get a car in this class up to 30. Oh yeah. Um, easily. I mean, you, you know, yeah. if you, if you get the, you know, like the civic hatchback sport touring, uh, which is the top trim level on the hatchback, uh, it's over 29,000. Yeah. yeah. And you know, if, when you start looking at, you know, some of the, the hot hatch variants, you know, like for example, you know, if you or you know, just the hotter variants of these, you know, like for example, the, um, the civic SI, uh, which is only going to be available as uh, coupe when it launches later this year. Um, you know, it's probably going to be in the in the thirty two, thirty three thousand dollar range. I, I would think um, the uh, the Type R, you know, is probably going to be in the mid to upper thirties. You know, probably close to forty. You know, just like be, a, yeah, yeah, Focus RS. You know, is like thirty six, thirty seven thousand dollars. I just like it's so tough for it's my. It's mind boggling, isn't it, to think of. You know, well, yeah. what used to be an economy car, you know, costing, you know, nearly $40,000. Well, that and I, I mean, for those those variants too, like the SI and the R, um, you can get a, a lot of GTI for under 30, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's 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 a really hard car to beat. Um, it, it's it's easier to be different, I guess. Uh, but if you're if you're going to compete against something like that polished, 
I, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I'm sure they're not looking to set the world on fire in terms of sales figures with the, the SI or the R either. But um, I'm not even sure that, that I have interest in those cars at that, that price level. I mean, they just seem to, to be pricing themselves out of of where I, you know, where I would want to be, but I get, I'm, well, I'm they, old, I mean, so and, they, and they don't expect to sell that many of those, yeah. you know, like the, the type R, you know, I would, I would be surprised if they sell more than three or 4,000 of those, if, if even that many in the U S um, in fact that, you know, I think maybe it might be global sales might be uh, like around 5,000. So it's probably only a couple thousand in the U S um, same thing with, you know, the focus RS or, you know, golf, the uh, golf R, you know, those are all, you know, in the five to 6,000 units a year range that they sell. Well, hmm. it's an interesting segment. I actually, I, I really like the smaller cars and um, yeah, I'm seeing now I looked it up on the website too. So it's like 21, three, that's a really good deal for. Yeah. Way it's it's a bargain. I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, <clears throat> it's not cheap, but I mean, compared to the rest of the market, you know, when you, I mean, it's, it's pretty hard these days to find any new car for much less than $20,000, at least sticker price. And you can actually, you can actually get, you know, a lot of incentives on a lot of the, the compact cars and, and smaller cars, um, you know, because, you know, this, for, with the, with a few exceptions, most particularly the Civic, um, you know, most of the other small cars are not selling that well. So you can actually get uh, some pretty healthy discounts on a lot of them. Uh, and, you know, you can get them down around 15 grand in a lot of cases, but um, the Civic is the one exception, you know, to everybody running away from cars into SUVs. In fact, you know, Civic sales were up, I think, something like 15 percent last in 2016. And it was actually Honda's best selling nameplate in 2016. That's impressive, especially given that they've rolled out a lot, you know, the, the HRV, which is to me, that's the perfect size crossover in that and, you know, in that brand, too, which should carry a lot more weight. But. Yeah, well, they've they've been uh, capacity constrained on the HRV, um, so I think they sold about seventy thousand or so last year. Um, the um, um, you know this year I think the the new CRV will probably be Honda's top seller because uh, that you know they just started production of that late in twenty sixteen, and so this year you know it'll have a full year of sales and it'll probably overtake the Civic this year. But it, you know Civic's still doing well. Well, it seems like a good problem to have for an automaker to be selling everything you can make. Yeah, well, you know, and especially for for Honda, um, you know, Honda is kind of an interesting case when it when you look at their their business practices. Um, you know, most other automakers uh, for their lower end vehicles, they dump tens of thousands of them into daily rental fleets. Honda does not sell cars to daily rental fleets. I mean. If you ever go to run a car at the airport, you will almost practically never find a Honda and, you know, in a rental fleet. Uh, they focus virtually all of their effort on retail sales. You know, so almost 100 percent of Honda's sales are to retail customers. Well, that's I mean, that's the way it should be. You know, rental fleets are if you're using it to prop up your sales numbers, that's that's silly. And then you're creating uh negative uh resale value there yeah absolutely you're flooding the market and you know those cars are going to rotate out of the fleets in what eighteen thousand miles so it seems seems like you're shooting yourself in the foot 
Yeah. Well, and you know, that's, um, uh, that's what's something that, uh, you know, kind of getting away from Honda for a moment, um, you know, something that the GM has been doing over the past year, that's kind of interesting, uh, to avoid, uh, selling, you know, selling excess volumes into rental fleets is, um, you know, they, they've been taking, um, and, and also to keep up their residual values on their used cars is, uh, in order, in order to keep from flooding the market with, uh, off lease used cars, they've actually been taking those. And, uh, you, I don't know if you've heard about the, uh, the lift, um, express drive program that they have in a number of cities where they, uh, they offer, um, discounted leases to, uh, lift drivers, um, and, yeah. and a bunch of cities with nearly new cars. And what they're, what they're actually doing is they're taking off lease, uh, cars that instead of sending them to auction, um, at, you know, and flooding the market with those cars, they're taking those cars and offering them to Lyft drivers to drive at, uh, discounted rates. And what that does is it makes newer cars available to Lyft drivers that are, you know, to make them more attractive to, to riders. And it also gives, uh, passengers of these vehicles an opportunity to experience these vehicles, to ride in these vehicles firsthand, um, which is kind of an interesting marketing strategy. You know, so expose people to these vehicles without necessarily going for a test drive or, you know, or buying one. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, can, um, getting some of these customer, these lift customers to come in, you know, when they go to shop for a car and say, Hey, I really like that Equinox or that cruise that I rode in last week, you know, or let, you know, let's go check one out and take one for a test drive. Well, that was part of the, uh, thinking behind the automakers buying into the rental, uh, companies back in the day too, you know, Hertz and, um, uh, national or, those too right but but they were they were flooding those those fleets with with brand new cars right and 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 what gm is doing is they're actually taking used cars and putting them making them available through uh through lyft yeah and maybe maybe that was just sort of their way of explaining it was oh no no it's a marketing thing we're putting the cars in there so people can can experience them it's a it's a it's an interesting way to double dip too um yeah where they're you're sort of instead of like you said instead of flooding the used market with cars and driving down the value of every single model and overall your your brand cachet uh you're getting another bite at the apple really uh the car goes for a useful life and it serves that that purpose that's genius uh, <laughs> all right do we want to move on to some topics absolutely all right, which do we we have a couple. So which do we want to cover first? Do we want to talk about uh the the Uber Waymo thing cuz we we teed that up. So we might as well Yeah, sure. Uh, why don't we why don't we start off with that um, one? So Uber uh, are terrible 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 people never take an Uber ever. I have never taken an Uber. I vow to never take one. Uh Mr. Kalanick, that was Dan Roth that said yeah. that. <laughs> You're awful. Um, You're horrible. You should be ashamed no, of yourself. No, I mean I I, I you know, I don't like Uber as a company either. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I support the premise of what companies like Uber and, and Lyft are doing because, you know, frankly, the taxi industry is pretty bad. You know, they're, oh. they're pretty horrible as well. Well, see, that's, uh, that's the thing is like their technology and the, the team that they built. Um, that was another story about Uber this week. But uh, just in general, their product is is good, but they as people are bad and they should yeah. feel bad <laughs> yeah i mean the, the company has a, a terrible corporate culture um you know i mean there's 
all kinds of issues there, and you know some of which we've talked about before. But the the news that we get, you know, we're recording this on Thursday night, and just a couple of hours ago, um, uh, Waymo uh, published a post on Medium announcing that they are suing Uber uh, for um, uh, Uber and uh, their subsidiary Auto uh, for basically theft of intellectual property. Uh, and misappropriation of intellectual property. And Auto uh, is a company that started up uh, early in 2016 uh, that was founded by four former Google employees, uh, three of whom worked uh, on the Google self-driving car program, which is now Waymo. Uh, and the, the fourth person was came from the Google mapping uh, division. And they started up Auto, which their focus was on developing autonomous trucks, uh, long haul trucks, which and, they could, yeah, which they could test without permits as well. Uh, well, permits? Why? Why? Why would we want to follow the rules? We're just who said they, they they decided they could test without permits? It not that's not. Uh, I think there's some uh, state regulators that would disagree with uh, with their Correct. assessment of that. Uh, but auto was purchased you know, a few months after they launched auto was purchased by Uber. And, uh, turns out that one of the, uh, people that, uh, one of the co-founders at auto, uh, Anthony Lewandowski, uh, is now being accused of having stolen all kinds of data and, um, drawings and and uh other other intellectual property from uh, from google uh, slash waymo uh before he left the company and uh according to the, the the lawsuit according to the complaint from waymo uh about six weeks before he left he downloaded about 9.7 gigabytes of material uh onto his company issued laptop and then copied that to an external hard drive before uh reformatting the the laptop and he brought that with him to Uber, to auto and the the key element of the material that he stole that he allegedly stole um <laughs> I have to remember to use that word because you know nothing's been proven in court yet um, yes but the, the evidence so far is pretty damning well I, of course we've also only gotten Waymo's side of right, the story. Right on Waymo's side of the story via Medium. So right, um, but and and I, I took a sk uh, skim through the uh, through the actual complaint that they filed in court as well. Um, but essentially, what they're what they're saying is that uh, one of the key elements of Waymo's technology, and this is something that they announced last month at the uh, Detroit Auto Show, is that they've developed um, their own sensors, including their own lidar sensors, in house, and they're they're going to be manufacturing those. Um, and so they've developed their own sensor technology that they've dramatically reduced the cost of this technology compared to where it was when when Google started down the self developing self-driving uh, car technology back in 2009. Uh, and they've slashed the cost of it by about 90 percent. And uh, evidently, you know, what they're what Waymo is claiming is that they uh, someone they accidentally got copied on uh, an email from one of their suppliers um, that was supposed to be a communication between uh, uh, them and Uber uh, that had some of this, uh, some of this material in there, some drawings uh, of the, I think of the circuit board. Um, and 
you know, they took a look at this and and realized that, wait a minute, this this is our circuit board design. Right. So and that's what tipped them off to to what was going on. And we should we should pause and get a little geeky and just say, like, while to most people, a circuit board is a circuit board is a circuit board. They all look the same. That is not the case. They are um, specific technology and often they are laid out in a particular way through exhaustive testing and R&D um, so that the, the signal flows through the board the way it needs to, to be, you know, resistant to radio interference and all of those things. Like nothing on a circuit board ends up there randomly. Right. <laughs> you know, well, so. and especially for something like this, I mean, you know, this is part of the, part of the LIDAR sensor, the, the laser sensor, you know, so they're doing all the signal conditioning of, you know, um, you know, sent it, it, beam, you know, the LIDAR, you know, sends out these laser beams and reflects back. And, you know, so they're measuring the, the time of flight. You know, so how long does it take each pulse of light to reflect back from an object that tells you how far away and how far away you are from that object and uh, helps you determine the shape and, and the velocity and direction of that object. Um, so all of this stuff, you know, is a lot of this is being done, you know, on the, the, the signal conditioning is being done on the circuit board. So you're right. It's, it's very specific uh, in the design. And it sounds like, at least according to Waymo, that, you know, they basically took it, you know, unchanged, you know, they, they basically, vir you know, changed virtually nothing on this um, when they when they took it. At least that's the that's the allegation. You know, we'll, we'll see when it all comes to court. Um, but. You know, what's interesting about this is, you know, over the years, um, you know, Google has been on the receiving end of a lot of patent lawsuits and intellectual property lawsuits from a bunch of other companies. But they're not a company that generally goes after other companies. You know, they, they, they've generally had a more open attitude towards intellectual property uh, well yeah they have until money is at stake this is the bitch of the thing with google is you know when their bottom line is at stake then the fangs come out but when it's everybody else they don't give a crap <laughs> right <laughs> you know but uh, you know i mean that's what that's what i'm getting at though i mean you know the they're they're generally not one that that tends to use uh intellectual property law you know to defend themselves they for the most part, they, you know, they'll, they usually keep moving along with their own technology and just doing, doing their thing. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly they've been accused of uh, misappropriating technology from other companies, uh, but they, they usually aren't the ones that are going after others. And in this case, you know, for them to come out so publicly, uh, you know, going after Uber uh, is, is kind of unusual for them. And so it's going to be very interesting to watch this over the coming weeks and months. Um, you know, certainly it, it wouldn't surprise me given some of the other things that, you know, Uber's general attitude, uh, you know, if they either um, when they bought auto, if they didn't do their, their due diligence or they simply decided to ignore things that they found, uh, you know, so if, if they're, you know, if they knew what was going on and just dismissed it, you know, that that could put them in a very bad position. Well, the former uh, Waymo employee who left too uh, said basically, like, I'm going to recreate this somewhere else. Well, at least at least that's what's being alleged in the in sure. the suit. Right. He allegedly said, <laughs> damn it, this is hard. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we don't want to you know, we don't want to defame anybody. Um, you know, and so, like I said, you know, so far, none of this has been proven in court. You know, no. Sure. So we'll we'll have to wait and see how it plays out over the next few months. Uh, but it you know if uh, if Waymo does prevail, 
um, it's going to be it's going to be very problematic for Uber. Yeah, but they I mean, they're worth so much on paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on paper. If they have to liquidate. Well, that, that's the other thing, too, is everybody well, thinks I mean, you know, Uber the, is like the, a super valuable company. They don't they're not making a profit. No, in fact, they, they, they reportedly lost about three billion dollars last year. Yeah. With an app that, first of all, their valuation is ludicrous. Yes. Their product is an app that summons cars. Yep. Like, you, you could, you should be able to do that profitably for less than a billion dollars from scratch. <laughs> Which you know? is exactly what a lot of other companies are in the process of developing. Yeah. So the fact that they lost three billion and their their valuation is some some ridiculous it's tens of billions, right? It's it's, like, it's about uh, sixty five billion dollars. That's idiotic. Yes. Um, not that I'm a market analyst, but that company does not in any way have anything that's going to return that kind of value. Well, and and the the key thing is that there's nothing that Uber has built, you know, at least in terms of their ride hailing platform that can't easily be replicated by any other company. You know, I mean, it's That's just, a, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, the technology is not that hard to build. No, they which, are really the only thing. Which is why have, a lot of other companies are doing it. Yeah. And the only thing they have right now is first mover advantage. And that's quickly going away as they continue to just be bad people uh, and get themselves distracted. And uh, w- automakers are already investing in, competitors or developing their own very similar solutions. The upside for an automaker is that they have access to all of the sensors in the vehicle without any kind of reverse engineering or difficulty. Right. They can design this stuff in from the get go. They can make it part of the apps that they already offer in some way. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of other ways that Uber's going to sort of get its ass handed to it if they're not careful. So. Right. You know, I mean, Uber has been losing, losing, billions of dollars a year, you know, in part because they um, they've been offering cut rate fares and, you know, they pay out most of what comes in to the drivers. And one of the reasons why they want to shift to autonomous vehicles is so they don't have to pay the drivers. But the problem is if they have to start buying or building vehicles, you know, it's not clear that they're actually going to be able to make any to get profitable doing that either. Yeah. And the autonomous vehicle thing brings up the whole other the point, like, at, I feel like we're at that cusp where there needs to be uh, some sort of federal rulemaking happening or underway for autonomous vehicles to be sharing the road with the rest of, uh, you know, the, the standard cars at this point. Um, yeah, well, don't, don't hold your breath on that. No, I'm not. I don't see it happening. But uh, and I've seen calls for this at a certain point, too, like over the last couple of weeks, like, hey, it's starting to get real messy out there and real uncertain. And, um, you, you know, we, we're going to need some guidelines. Uh, the industry actually would probably welcome it versus limbo or or nothing, you know, like the, the regulations need to start keeping pace. And and so it, that's going to be a larger and larger stumbling block for all of this stuff as it continues to go because uh, the companies that are developing it want to move cautiously they don't they don't want to have to undo things after they uh, release a product but it's so uncertain they also don't want to be waiting for legislation that takes two years to happen when they've got a product ready to go so all right <clears throat> well the, i mean the problem we've got right now is that you know the, the technology is still very nascent and so 
you know, you don't want to create regulations that are going to potentially um, stymie the development of the technology. So whatever you do, you know, it has to be um, technology agnostic. And you know, I think one one way to do that would be uh, to focus on you know, any regulations that you would develop should probably be in the form of you know, setting some standards, some performance standards for uh, the, particularly for the sensor technology. You know, so the, the sensors should be able to detect certain types of things in certain types of conditions. Um, you know, and that should be the the baseline. Yeah, you know, as far as how they interact with uh, human driven vehicles, uh, I'm not sure how you're actually going to be able to regulate that. One thing that I think it is good, you know, from the the guidelines that NHTSA put out last year, um, is that they want uh, companies that are developing this technology to log data and make it available uh, to regulators in order to to study it, you know, and understand how these vehicles are working and and uh, eventually, you know, that can be used, you know, perhaps to develop some new regulations. But I think, uh, you know, you, you have to be careful about how you do those regulations uh, right now. You you don't want to rush into it too much. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that there's a couple of things that are going to happen here. And, and one of the pieces you actually wrote was the uh, this week for Forbes, um, the new version of Cadillac Q with uh, it's starting to put vehicle to vehicle communications capability into the cars and, and other automakers are going to start doing this as well. It's going to propagate across the GM line eventually. It, it not really for anything super functional yet. I see this as, as GM making a move to get it out there uh, to be able to take advantage of um, whatever they can do or, or just be ready. You know, like it kind of doesn't hurt them to have it out there at this point. And if one of the moves to make uh, sharing the roads with automated vehicles easier is by vehicle to vehicle communication, which is probably a very good thing to be looking at. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, V to V communication is something that, uh, that's something that should be a part of every automated vehicle. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, for the, the fundamental control of the vehicle, you know, it should be able to do it without communicating with other vehicles. You know, every, every vehicle should be able to communicate or should be able to, con, you know, navigate around, navigate through the world on its own using its sensors. But the V2V adds this extra layer of situational awareness to the vehicles. And, you know, by communicating with each other, the vehicles can also signal intent to each other so that you're not um, you can you can get some proactive information, you know, before, you know, before uh, the sensors can pick up stuff, you can get information that is transmitted between the vehicles. And the other one of the other components of this is that the we need to, we just need more data. Um, and uh, another thing we saw this week was uh, BMW and Mobileye are rolling out better better mapping or, or map data collection um, as well. Yeah. So you know one of the the things that uh, Mobileye uh, Mobileye's company that currently makes uh, most of the vision systems that are used for lane, uh, lane keeping systems uh, in the market today. So they supply many of the OEMs, uh, not all of them. There's a few that are using other products. Um, Subaru, for example, uses uh, a Hitachi system with uh, dual cameras 
for their eyesight system. Mercedes-Benz is using an auto leave dual camera system, but Mobileye supplies most of the single camera systems that are on the market today. And one of the things that they um, announced last year uh, was something called the road experience management system. And we talked a little bit about this, I think back in November, after I went to a, uh, a Delphi event in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. You had, we had an interview too. If we right. dig that back up. Yeah. yeah and so, um, what what uh, REM is, uh, and we're not talking about the band here, uh, <laughs> is uh, they they've got a, a mechanism that uses the taking the images that the camera is recording. Uh, you have a, a database in the car of stationary objects, you know, that are in the world around you. So this is a, another layer on top of you get you know for navigation. You've got your basic map layer of here's where all the roads are. Um, and then you've got another layer on top of that. That's part, you know, part of building up, you know, high definition maps for automated driving that includes, you know, the objects in the world around the road, uh, you know, and also um, real time information about, you know, things, things that are that uh, can be dynamic, things like construction zones. And um, that database resides in the car, the REM system you know, as it's taking its pictures, as the car drives down the road, it's comparing what the objects it detects in those images against that database. And when it sees something that's different, uh, then it records, it takes the location of that object uh, and transmits it up to um, mobilized servers. And then it gets aggregated with information from other vehicles. Um, they validate it and then it gets um put all put together and sent back out to the vehicle fleet. So you can get updated uh, navigational data at, you know, in, in real time. And because it's only looking at the, the changes from what's already in the vehicle, it's not transmitting every single thing that it sees, but only the things that it sees that aren't already in the database. So it doesn't, you know, it's not going to flood the system with too much data. Um, and so they announced that. And now, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Volkswagen announced that they're going to be uh, incorporating this into uh, their upcoming vehicles starting in 2018. Uh, and this is all based on uh, using uh, mobilized next generation chip, which is what they call it IQ4. The stuff that's in vehicles today is IQ3. The IQ4 chip is coming to market in 2018. Um, Volkswagen is going to be using it on some of their vehicles next year, uh, collecting uh, REM data and um the the deal announced this week uh, with BMW um, is uh, they're going to they're taking that data uh, from the IQ4 chips and they're actually going to be incorporating it into high definition maps from here, which is the company that uh, was bought last year from Nokia uh, by a consortium consisting of BMW, Mercedes Benz, and Volkswagen. And Volkswagen hasn't said yet whether you know they're going to be using the the, the REM data. Uh, for here maps, because uh, they do use here maps in their in their cars, uh, but that you know they will probably be doing that. They'll probably make that announcement at some point. They're still in discussions uh, from, according to what I've been told by uh, um, my contacts at here. Uh, but I would expect that probably in the not too distant future, we'll we'll also hear a similar announcement from uh, Mercedes Benz as well, and perhaps from other automakers. 
Well, and this is on top of the the stuff that the, this this announcement this week uh, is on top of the you know when they announced it with CES that there'd be autonomous seven series cars and you know working with, with Mobileye and Intel and BMW together and so they're they're making a lot of moves and they're doing a lot of uh, I guess data collection at this point, um, but it, it's more than just you know having the cars out there getting the data. They've got to figure out how to transmit this data back and forth and and again like you said you know it's even if it's only doing incremental stuff like uh how do you get that over uh, a mobile wireless network and, and stuff so they're well and that's you know mobile eye understands that you know and that's why um they've designed the system to um keep the uh keep the bandwidth requirements to a minimum uh so i think i think it's about um 10 ki- or it's either 10 or 100 kilobytes um per kilometer yeah. uh so i mean it's not it's not a lot of data i guess 10 um, kb per kilometer so yeah, yeah 10, 10 10 kilobytes per you know per kilometer which is you know i mean that's 10 kilobytes is almost nothing nothing yeah. uh, these days yeah. <laughs> um so you know that um yeah and uh when i talked to uh mobile eye folks uh last fall uh, they said that, you know, a high definition map of the entire United States would be about 62 gigabytes, you know, which is, you know, I mean, that's a lot of data, but you know, that's, that's how much would be stored, uh, on the vehicle. I mean, so, I could pull 62 gigabytes off my 4g in uh, minutes. You yes. Know? Like it, it wouldn't take very long. Um, yeah. So that, that's impressive actually. Like that, not only the fact that they've gotten the map that, I, that's kind of small, honestly, in my my mind. Um, but also the fact that we have networks robust enough to just move that kind of data without thinking. I mean, and you know, it's going to get better. You know, in the coming years, you know, in the you know by the end of the decade, we're going to start seeing rollout of five uh, G networks. You know, they're starting to test some of those technologies uh, this year, and you know, we'll see those rolling out by the end of the decade, uh, and that'll help. Uh, you know, have more efficient use of data or more efficient use of wireless spectrum. Uh, so, yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that we're, that we're starting to see now is um, by the mid 2020s, uh, every car is going to have a cellular telematics system built into it. Al- almost every car. Uh, well, yes. Know, How else are they going to spy on us, Sam? <laughs> well, th- well, there is that too. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the other thing to keep in mind is that Mobileye is not the only company doing this sort of thing. You know, collecting the data, collecting data from vehicle sensors, aggregating it, and then spreading it back out to the fleet. Uh, there's other companies like Civil Maps, uh, which is a company that Ford invested in last year, uh, that's doing something very similar. Uh, their Civil Maps is actually getting data from more than just the camera sensors. They're also using lidar and radar and whatever other sensors are available to collect data but yeah you'll see you'll see some other companies doing the same sort of thing in the the next couple of years as well yes because they want to put it all in in the the thing and make it part of you know x key score or whatever that thing is and yeah we we will have no uh no privacy um we don't we i was reading about uh palantir um which this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, it's it's a Peter Thiel uh, venture, and he invested in it pretty heavily. They are tied up very deeply with the uh, intelligence community. And mm-hmm. holy crap! <laughs> yeah, if you want that. if you want to be scared, just just read up read about some of the stuff that uh, Thiel's invested in. Um, 
Uh, well, I mean, there, there's all kinds of things, you know, it's, it'll, uh, it'll just make you paranoid. It's just, so. yeah, it's really just not helping my desire to just want to completely unplug and go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want, I want breaker points and uh low compression so I can run my tractor on nothing. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I just, Okay. Okay. Moving on. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) um, I, this is an interesting little thought experiment that I, um, I admittedly haven't dug into the numbers for, um, but I I wanted to actually run this by you. It's kind of picking up on uh, an idea that was tweeted by uh, Dave Sullivan, who I think he's, he's auto Pacific, I think. Um, But uh, he's an analyst and he, he works from home from Michigan. Like all you guys apparently do. Uh, Um, but so the Opal division is, is up for sale. Uh, Uh, the Popeye's chicken has just been sold. Uh, so I think Popeye's was sold for about 1.8 billion. Opal is on the block for about 2 billion. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure the restaurant's a better deal. And Uber's worth 65. Huh? And Uber is worth 65. Yes. Which again, both the restaurant and the crappy chicken joint make something of value. I hey, mean, don't, the, the, don't speak the, ill of Popeye's. Popeye's <laughs> makes great chicken. Okay. All right. It's funny. Especially the spicy. All right. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. I'll back away from that. Um, I'll, I'll backpedal a little bit, but uh, you know, Opal definitely makes something of value. Popeye's they, they make food um, and Uber makes an app that doesn't make anything else. So that sort of shade throwing done. Um, I, I honestly do think though, like if you've got 2 billion sitting around, the restaurant is a much better deal than an automaker, which seems counterintuitive when you think about it, because like you, you figure, you, you know, cars, like that's a very, it's a very prestigious thing to make, right? Like that's, that's super, you know, technologically advanced and people spend tens of thousands of dollars on them. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the real deal, man. Like fried chicken is fried chicken. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's, but there's, but there's far more ego involved with building cars. Yeah. Well, and so my, and my reasoning is to like, uh, being in the restaurant business is, is, you know, it's more nimble, it's margins. They're probably not great. Uh, but the car business, neither is the car business. I was going to say the car business has terrible margins, especially on the kind of cars that Opal makes. Um, and, and you would think the, you know, yes, you're going to have to invest capital, uh, to set up a, a chain of chicken restaurants. So that's the thing too. Like it, when you're buying it, you're not starting from the ground up uh, with either of these. So you're actually getting a deal with either of them. Um, I think you're, you're probably getting for 2 billion with Opal. Like you're getting a lot more uh, stuff you can strip and flip if you're, you know, some kind of capital management company. Uh, well, except that it's, it's PSA that's trying to buy Opal from GM. Right. So if you're PSA too, like you're, you're looking at like, well, where are the redundancies? What can we sell off? They're not going to just necessarily just throw stuff away. So, you know, where are they going to streamline the business and and what can they get rid of to recoup some of that, uh, you know, sunk, sunk cost. Um, there's, there's more, uh, more stuff of value when you buy the automaker versus like buying the restaurant chain. I, I get that, but I think that your path to profitability, uh, is much, much faster when you're selling food. And so it was just, just an interesting, interesting kind of thought. Um, and you know, they probably both spend 
maybe the same amount on advertising or they both spend they both spend a bunch um they they have to move more chicken nuggets per thousand dollars spent in media than opal sells cars for the same same kind of dollars so that i mean that's 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 my take on it i don't know uh i should back it up with numbers but does that does that make sense or am i just off in crazy land again <laughs> those are two different questions i realize <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive correct um to, to be honest i i'm not really sure um you know i guess i'm 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 still not entirely sure why psa actually wants opal um you know I, well so do, do you think they, psa they wants see, it to just get rid of competition i don't know i mean what why would you know why would you spend a couple of billion dollars to to buy the car you know to uh, buy the company to get rid of the the brand uh, yeah, i don't know cuz you know the, the thing the thing is it's not like you know i mean Volkswagen bought up a lot of Volkswagen group brought up, bought up a lot of other brands over the last you know 20 30 years you know that were there was some overlap with some of their existing brands uh but you know they they bought up brands like Bugatti and and Lamborghini uh and Bentley you know which you know were obviously extending you know their their reach into very different areas where Volkswagen and Audi weren't already competing but Opel you know is kind of already overlapping with uh with both the the Peugeot and and Citroen brands and so I'm not really sure what's in it for for PSA um, other than just to expand their, their total volumes, you know, certainly there's, there's going to be some, some cost savings, you know, from eliminating redundancies uh, in engineering and, and manufacturing, but I don't know. I think it, the deal makes a lot more sense for GM than it does for, for PSA. I think. Well, what does PSA stand to gain from buying Like how, how is GM going to lock down their IP as well? Because I mean, when you're building a car, especially a competing sector it's all platform engineering at this point so we saw this with like the sale of Saab um that was that was Epsilon and they continued they still I think they're still making Epsilon um cars Uh, they're making newer generations of it you know they're they're quite they're they're quite different they've been revamped a lot since the the last Saabs that were built um you know I mean typical you know what's typical of uh, this type of deal is that, you know, when you sell a sell the company like that, uh, you know, they PSA will be allowed to continue manufacturing the, the current stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, the, they'll get, you know, they'll get some engineering expertise out of that. But then, you know, there's there's not much more than what they could get by just, you know, buying and reverse engineering in a car, the car anyway. Um, so, you know, what'll probably happen is, you know, then as the next, as the next generation of the various Opal models, uh, come up for, to be revamped, you know, they'll probably get put on common platforms with, uh, PSA vehicles. And in some cases, you know, the PSA next generation PSA vehicles might use some of the Opal technology. Um, but it's more likely that, you know, they, it'll go the other way around, um, because, you know, GM will probably limit, uh, you know, part of the deal would probably be limiting PSA's use of that for anything other than Opel and Vauxhall vehicles. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I have kind of the same question. Um, like, what's in it for for PSA to own Opel? <laughs> um, 
I mean, you know, Opal's been pretty steadily losing money for better part of the last 20 years, which is why, why, why GM wants to get out of Opal. Oh, they used to uh, make money. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually they did. They, they were actually doing pretty good uh, for a while in the, in the eighties and, and the early nineties. And it wasn't until the, the latter half of the nineties that they started losing money consistently. Uh, and, you know, they almost, they almost sold Opal um, in 2009 uh, during the bankruptcy reorganization. They had a deal to sell it to uh, Magna and, um, a Russian bank. Oh, that's right. Magna wanted to get in the car business in yep. like in the worst way. They wanted to become a manufacturer. Yeah, uh, you know, so they they had a deal with uh, Spare Bank and Magna to sell Opal, and um, GM backed out of the deal um, after about six months into you know the negotiations. They walked away from the deal and decided to keep Opal instead. Uh, you know, and they, you know, so they, they've used Opal for a lot of their um, small and mid-sized car engineering uh, over the last decade. But a lot of that, um, that work has now been transferred over. You know, a lot of the mid-sized car stuff is now being led out of uh, Detroit, out of Warren. Uh, and uh, the small car engineering is primarily being led out of South Korea. Yeah. Uh, so they don't really need Opal's expertise anymore. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week. You know, they, they certainly have, I mean, their day investments paid off. Um, uh, PSA's uh, CEO, uh, Carlos Tavares, has indicated too, they, they may want to sell Opal um, outside the European market uh, if, if they pick up the brand. So maybe, maybe that's it. like, yeah, we'll take a hit to buy Opal, but we will be able to sell our cars. So we'll get greater volume. Uh, in different markets. I'm not sure why they would want to try launching it in other markets uh, and expect that that's going to pay off as well. I don't know. These guys have, they got little plans that. I, yeah, I'm, I sure, I'm sure, he, I'm sure he's got some kind of plan. I just don't know what it is at this point. Yeah. Um, well, we'll keep an, keep an eye on that. Um, did we want to hit, uh, oh, before we yeah, do anything so, else, we we should we should get to questions. But we had a uh, an in, you did an interview uh, with with Alan Dona that is, would dovetail nicely with one of our questions. Yeah. So um, while I was in Chicago for the auto show, I sat down with Alan Dona, who's uh, electric powertrain systems manager at Ford. Uh, Ford was showing off one of their uh, Transit Connect hybrid prototypes uh, in Chicago, and so let's run that interview now, uh, where I talk to Alan about that and what they're what they're doing with hybrids uh, going forward, and then we'll be right back. All right. So, uh, Alan Dona, you are uh, manager of electric propulsion. For Ford? Calibration of the electrified power transmission. Okay, great. Um, so let's talk about the, uh, the Transit Connect Hybrid, uh, which is a new program uh, that Ford has just launched. Uh, are they all in the city of New York? No. We're okay. going to have 20 vehicles, 10 of them taxis, 50 of them at, or 10 of them taxi, 10 of them as delivery vans. They will be in several large cities across the U.S. The only city we've announced so far is um, New York. Okay. Um, 10 vans and, and 10 tags. Um, so, first off, the the powertrain that's in these vehicles, um, what 
is, is it essentially the same powertrain that you have today in the C-Max and the Fusion? Absolutely. Or, okay, so same battery and everything? Same battery, same uh, powertrain. So the, the two-liter GDI? Two-liter two Atkinson with the HF35. Okay. And then um, in the in the taxi, uh, I was looking at the taxi earlier. Uh, looks like is the battery mounted underneath the uh, second row seat? Yes. Okay. And then um, I noticed in the in the back of the, the taxi, uh, the floor seems fairly high. Why, why is that? We raised the, the floor up so that they had a lo level floor because the battery does somewhat uh, in the okay. area. All right. And then if you notice at the rear, we've actually provided a cargo storage area. Again, we're looking at, at taxis around the world. And sure. The driver always has his stuff that he's got stuck in the trunk. We want to provide an area for that. Okay. And looking at where they can. So Ford, uh, Ford was actually one of the first manufacturers to use hybrid vehicles as taxis. But about a was it 2006 or seven when you launched the Escape hybrids? In yeah, New York. It, the Escape hybrid went out, and they've got a long history of, of being used as taxis. They've been going out there for. We've got um, fleets that we've talked to that have examples of over 300, 350,000 miles on the original powertrain and battery. So we've got a lot of great experience from that. We've got customers, fleet customers, showing interest in it. So this is part of let's go get some more data and work with some of these customers to understand their usage patterns and what we can do. So I guess what you know, given the experience that you already have with the Escape Hybrid, you know, and now you know, you've got this vehicle with the, the next generation of, of your hybrid powertrain, what sorts of things do you expect to learn? From what we didn't get, what we've got, we're going to have telematics on all these vehicles so that we can gather data about what type of routes, what type, how much time they spend idling, that sort of stuff. So what we've got to date from the, the old hybrid, hybrid tax, or escape taxes, is a lot of, okay, this is the type of improvement we've gotten, this is what we saw, saw more anecdotal, 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 thank you. <laughs> I'm an engineer. I'm not one of the. I'm not one, I'm not one, I'm not, I used to be one too. So. Yeah, I'm not one. Not one of these communication guys. Um, so, but what we can do with with this is we'll be able to find out exactly what kind of speeds, how much, what kind of acceleration, how much idle time. So that much more granular data. Much more granular data, so that we can actually sit with the fleets and say, okay, if you've got this type of a, of a fleet usage, what kind of fuel savings would you get? Because that becomes very important for them if they're going to pay more up front for a vehicle to know where their trade-off's going to be, how long before they can they can balance that off. So that's the sort of thing. At the same point, we want to see, you know, what kind of usage the components are going to get, right? What kind of temperatures, what kind of currents are going to go through the batteries, so we can ensure that we've got a system that's designed to be robust and durable for the user. Sure. One of the probably the the most important technical change I would think from uh, from those escapes to what you have today is those those vehicles had nickel metal hydride batteries. Now you've got lithium ion batteries in all of your hybrids. Yeah, and so we've we've moved several generations in technology in our hybrids, both on the batteries and on the on the uh, the well the battery. 
batteries, the, the engine, and the transmission have all all progressed substantially from that. And we want to make sure that we've got the data to know what kind of life we can expect and ensure that we can keep these customers satisfied. Um, based on based on what you've seen so far, um, you know, from from talking to your your customers. Um, does there seem to be a lot of interest in this type of powertrain for these kinds of applications? Yeah, this, there's there's a big interest. There's a lot of question whether they want hybrid, whether they want uh, full electric, or whether they want plug-in. Right. And that varies by customers. We're trying to get some of that usage profile data so that we can help answer those questions together. And maybe put together a model of for you know look work with a particular customer, a particular fleet operator. You know, here's what your usage is. This we think this is the the, the combination will be the best fit for exactly. you. Yeah. So as we gather this information, we can start saying this type of this type of operations drive this kind of type of usage. This is the the, the best technology we can offer you to go through. So we're having a lot of those conversations with all of our commercial customers, and this is part of that stuff. As you may be aware, we're also doing a similar similar with the transit customs. With the transit customs. That was actually my next question. Yeah. <laughs> so um, with those transit customs, uh, you know, that's a bigger vehicle than the Transit Connect. Um, what what powertrain are you using in those vehicles? We haven't released it, but it is a different powertrain. Okay. That one will be a plug-in right. plug vehicle. Um, it is a different technology than we have on the, on the road today. Okay. Um, and we've been working on how to find, get that up and running. It will also be on, have 20 vehicles on the road by the end of the year or later this year so that we can start gathering some similar information in the European city drive city, European city driving areas like one. Um, are, are there any plans to do this with um, battery electric, uh, some battery electric vehicles as well to gather that sort of data, or are you going to try and extrapolate from these two programs? The reality is, is you can extrapolate a lot from these programs. Is once you find out the usage, you can say, okay, kind of range, what kind of power power energy does do these fleets need? Right. Right. And uh, fleets are very rational. You can go through and make appeals to the data and so this is how far your 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 customer your products drive every day. Right? Here's the farthest they've ever gone right. in a year and a half. You don't need to, to do twice or three times the amount of range and they'll look at the cost of the battery and say, Man, I don't want it. I don't want so, yeah, looking further out, you know, um, Ford has announced, you know, 2020, uh, you're going to have a, um, an F-150 hybrid as well. Um, the last time a, a manufacturer um, introduced a, a vehicle of that type of configuration, it was not a huge commercial success. One of, one of the things that we're taking a different tact on our electrification is going after And you go take a look at what are the reasons that people buy those products, and it's not fuel economy. So we're going to take take on and say, how can we use electrification to enhance the reason people buy capability, performance, productivity, and from that, you then use electrification to enhance that, and then also give the fuel economy, as opposed to going out just for fuel economy. Um, 
what about um, low voltage electrification? Do you see that fitting in somewhere in this we spectrum do, as well? We, we do have some projects on low voltage electrification. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know you haven't announced. Uh, okay. I'm, just, I'm asking we, kind we, of in general terms. In, in, I mean, is that something that you see fitting general, into the, in the general, spectrum? We, we look at the, we are looking at the whole spectrum of electrification because we make a whole range of products, right? Yeah. And not everybody can afford the big the big upfront investment of of a full hybrid or plug-in or whatever. Sure. And as you look at across the vehicle lines, there's different uses for different levels of electrification, and that also varies by region as well. And, um, you, know, it, you know, certainly, at least for the time being, um, you, know, you still have you still have the, the prospect of, you know, the, the CAFE targets for 2025. Yeah. I mean, and so it, it, it seems like you would need uh, a range of solutions to, to meet ab- that for different customers. We're, we're trying to find what the right range of products are. Um, we do, we continue to develop what that is and find where electrification plays a role in meeting those. Um, but again, to try and meet the volumes you would need for that, you don't want to do electrification for fuel economy only. You right. want to do it to satisfy, to deliver what the customer wants right. in their vehicle and then also get good fuel. Because you know, certainly in the absence of significantly higher fuel prices, you know the, the, the vehicles that you put on the market have to appeal to customers on their own merits uh, for, for the reasons that people want to buy that type of vehicle. You know, for, for a full-size pickup truck, you know, they want payload and towing capability. So mm-hmm. they, they don't want to sacrifice that, you know, if gas is $2, $2.50 a gallon. And that's exactly our plan, because okay. we're going after, we know our brands, especially of our iconic, our iconic vehicles like the F-150 and the Mustang. We know why people buy them. We're going to take electrification and enhance those those reasons to buy, and then in addition provide good food. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's a that's a, that's a very along the same lines as what I've heard. You know, also over the last couple of years from a number of uh, premium vehicle brands. Mm-hmm. You know, where they're putting, for example, plug-in hybrid powertrains into very expensive vehicles um, and tuning them more for performance. You know, so you get a fuel efficiency boost, but also a performance boost, and that's something that customers are willing to pay the cost premium for. And in our case, we're looking at you get the performance and then you get the fuel account. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Anything else that uh, you want to add uh, about just, what I mean, Ford's doing in electrification? I mean, obviously, we're committed to electrification. We're doing 13 new vehicles between now and 2020. It's going to keep me very busy. Yeah. <laughs> Got a lot of work to do. Um, but it's an exciting time to look at it. Like you said, we see, see a convergence in the cost of ownership between electric and non-electric or in conventional for the next 15 years. And we're trying to move towards where we see that future. With our products, yeah, I guess um, 
would it be reasonable to assume that um, you know one of the one of the products that uh, Mark Fields announced last month was um, next generation uh, police interceptor that's going to be hybrid. Um, Absolutely. Two, two or two-rated yeah. police cars. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, the utility and a sedan, presumably. Uh, would those presumably be using something, some similar technology to what's in those transit customs that are running, that are going to be running in London? Or is that, is that something else entirely different? We haven't announced what the technology is. Okay. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the same technology. Okay. Very different customer usage profiles and needs. All right. Well, thank okay. you very much, Alan Dona. Thank you, Sam. So coming off an interview about uh, hybrids and how they are developed and engineered and all of those uh, really interesting, cool inside baseball things, uh, we had a question this week. Uh, it was a, a multi-parter uh, on Twitter, but basically, uh, why are there not uh, too many hybrids that are in the like 250 to 300 horsepower range where they're, they're sort of like a, a performance hybrid versus a high efficiency hybrid? Um, there, there are some, um, you know, and you know, they're, they're obviously a little pricier. Uh, I think we will see more of them showing up in the next few years, but I mean, right now, um, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of limited. I think, you know, part of the reason why there's not more right now is because basically hybrid sales as a whole are not doing great at this point. Um, you know, and the hybrids have been kind of, um, hitting the skids for the last couple of years, you know, with, with low gas prices, um, you know, more, more people that are interested in green transportation have been migrating more towards, excuse me, more towards, uh, battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids and away from, uh, traditional non-plug-in hybrids. And so the, the ones that are available, you know, that are more premium hybrids with maybe a little more performance, frankly, haven't been selling very well. Um, you know, I mean, one, you know, one example is the, uh, the Lexus GS, uh, 450, uh, which let's see in January, um, Lexus sold a grand total of six of those, um, wow. in the United States. Yeah. Wow. And, um, so, you know, the, none of these, you know, mo most of these, uh, premium, uh, performance oriented hybrids haven't really been doing that great in the market. Well, I mean, you could um, get, you can get an SX. That's a performance hybrid or a, that's true. Um, and, and, and Acura sold 50 of those. Right. So that, that's pretty good when, when your yeah, car costs $160,000. <laughs> sure. You know, I, I think, I think what, uh, what our, uh, listener was looking for, there was something, you know, a little more moderately priced, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the MKZ, uh, hybrid, yeah. you know, and it's, you know, I think total, total system, uh, combined power output of that one uh, with the electric, with the engine and the uh, electric motor, I think is about 188 horsepower, which, you know, is, is good, but it's not great. Um, you know, so there, there are some alternatives to that. Uh, one being the, uh, the BMW 330e, which is actually a plug-in hybrid. Um, and, that one, you know, is uh, two, about 248 horsepower uh, combined with the engine and the motor. Uh, there's also the Mercedes-Benz uh, C350e, uh, which is also a plug-in hybrid, you know, in the same same segment, uh, similar kind of output. Um, so there there are some uh, some examples out there. But again, none of these are selling particularly well. You know, the Mercedes, uh, they sold 210 in, in January. Uh, BMW sold 129 330Es. Yeah. Um, you know, so availability is kind of limited, mostly in California. 
but you can you can get them in other places. Um, they're just there's just not a lot of demand for them. Well, and, and I would expect too the the Mercedes and the BMW. Um, if you're going to purchase them, uh, you're going to get less car for more money. Uh, you know than than the MKZ uh, in terms of just size and space and mm-hmm. you know features. Um, you're going to spend more to equip uh, on paper one of the the German cars the same way. Um, they probably lease for about the same, maybe a little better on the Germans. Just you know they they like to juice their lease rates low because they have high residuals, so they they play around with that. Um, yeah, and and you know they also get around a lot of that too with um, their certified pre-owned programs. So they sell a lot of their off-lease vehicles through CPO programs, and that right. that makes them a lot of money. Um, I guess one of the things I would would offer up is don't necessarily get so hung up on um, the horsepower number uh, with with a hybrid because you've got the electric motor there. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key advantage there, you know, because the electric motors got torque, you know, from zero RPM, right. Uh, you know, in most driving, you know, where you want the low end torque, it actually feels stronger than it is. I mean, you know, unless you're going for max speed runs, uh, all the time, which, you know, in which case, why are you buying a hybrid? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, for the kind of driving you're going to do most of the time, uh, you don't actually need that much power. Uh, but, you know, if you do, you know, there, um, just tonight, I guess the embargo was lifted on uh, drive impressions of uh, the new uh, the new uh, Porsche Panamera um, Turbo S um, e-hybrid or whatever, yeah, whatever they call it. You know, they got to stop making their names a paragraph and we'll be able to explain their cars <laughs> yeah. a lot better. But this, you know, this one, you know, they've take they've got the uh, the plug-in hybrid system uh, that's already available with a V6 engine, and they're pairing it up with uh, a twin-turbo four-liter V8 uh, for a total output of 670 horsepower. Uh, so, you know, they're using a lot of the technology from the 918 Spider and putting that into the Panamera. Uh, so if you really want some a high performance hybrid, you know that's that's one to take a look at. How do you think those cars are going to age? You know, like we we've, we've seen, you know, something like the Porsche 928 has certainly not aged well. Uh, you can get one of those very inexpensively because it's just a nightmare in terms of uh, surf, or, or it can be, I should say. Um, now when you've got a Panamera with a hybrid, you know, and a you know a, a high performance hybrid powertrain. I'm I'm just wondering, like in 15 years, is this the new, you know, seven thousand dollar Porsche that's just a complete mess? <laughs> um, it probably won't be that cheap, but um, well, inflation and all, it'll be fourteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it'll I think it'll do better than you know 1970s era Porsches, um, especially the 928. Yeah. And especially this, the second generation Panamera, you know, it's a much better looking car than the first generation uh, version was. Um, you know, and I think, you know, hybrid technology and, you know, all, I think all of the, the technology in these vehicles, um, you know, has got has advanced to the point where, you know, it's, they're, they're pretty, they're much more reliable. You know, they're, you know, one of the, one of the issues, you know, with cars like the 928, was they were they were complex, um, you know, and they they had reliability issues uh, in those days, you know, and they ended up being very expensive to fix. You know, certainly, you know, something like a, a Panamera, high, you know, plug-in hybrid is not going to be cheap to fix ten or fifteen years from now. Uh, but it's also 
I'm, I'm going to guess, you know, probably less likely to have problems. I was going to say. At least some of the yeah. kinds of problems that a 928 had. Well, yeah, it's probably a lot less prone to breaking. But I, I mean, it's just, a, again, it's it, I do these things. I want to be the agent provocateur. I'll, I'll, um, I'll hey, ask questions. With, nope. With nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, open somebody needs to ask the questions. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, but, the, you know, the, the hybrids that spring to mind that are kind of the most enthusiastic driving, like overall driving experience. Don't like I said, don't get hung up necessarily on the um just the horsepower number but go drive them uh the accord hybrid doesn't seem to have a problem feeling enthusiastic you know they've matched the v6 with the the hybrid powertrain in that so well that was that was on the original oh, accord is, hybrid. is it not the v6 still i don't no, know no, that's when i drove I they was only did that that was only the very the very original one the current generation uh accord hybrids are four cylinders okay so dan but, is full of crap <laughs> It's still good to but, drive, though. Um, you know, they, you know, uh, both the the Accord and the um, the Fusion and you know the MKZ, which shares the same powertrain. Uh, you know, the, those you know they actually perform pretty well. Yeah, I really you like know, the Fusion Energy. Um, you know, yeah. so that's a plug-in, and you know that was. Yeah, I mean, it's the same powertrain that's in the the regular Fusion Hybrid, except with a bigger battery. Yeah, and I liked that a lot. I liked the ability to just be able to select when I when I was running off the battery and and when I was you know, operating as a hybrid and stuff. And that that car drives well. The the one issue I have with the Fusion is just you know visibility and stuff like that is is it's a little bit more like sitting in a bucket. But it's just generally a good car. Um, but you're already driving an MKZ hybrid, so you know this. I mean, we're not uh, we're not breaking new ground. Uh, how do, how does that Camry hybrid that you had? stack up in this um i think it's probably a little less lively than uh it's yeah it's definitely a little less lively than the the ford system uh it's not quite as powerful but it's it's still good um yeah i think ford ford has definitely tuned their system for a little more performance than toyota has uh at least you know in the fusion versus camry comparison you know if you're looking for uh, a more of a performance hybrid from Toyota, then I think you know probably the the Lexus the GS is probably the one you'd want to look at, um, or you know I would take a look at the uh, either the Mercedes C Class or the uh, the three series. Uh, in fact, I've got a three series a three thirty E scheduled um, for early April, so I'll let you know firsthand what that one's like. How does that the BMW system is that? basically they developed one system and scaled it because i i'm just thinking i had an x5 that was uh the the hybrid as a matter of fact it is except the three series weighs a lot less than an x5 so the, i was surprised actually by how good um the bmw hybrid system is given how much they scoffed at it for how long <laughs> oh yeah i know they've, they've done a good job on it um so all right i think we've given some options well actually if you and, and you know i mean another another good you know performance hybrid option if you want one is uh the the i8 the bmw i8 well that's that's an awfully expensive option uh it's probably cheaper than that panamera that's true <laughs> <laughs> hey if, if it's somebody else's money too right like yeah money bags that's right sell the that's house right. by the car that's right what's that's what we're here for to spend somebody else's money correct it's, it's always fun um, all right. What else did we get uh, question wise? And uh, uh, see, somebody had one had a comment about what car brand does the marketing write checks that cars can't cash. Oh, and he said uh, Jeep. Yeah. Um, I I have to disagree with that one. Um, you know, certainly, you know, not not all Jeeps are created equal. Um, you know, there's a lot of the Jeeps that 
that people buy, you know, never, you know, never go off road and probably shouldn't. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, if you actually do want to do some real off roading, you'd be hard pressed to find something more capable than a Wrangler. Uh, I mean, even, I mean, pretty much, uh, pretty much all the Jeep models, you know, have at least, uh, you know, one trail rated edition. Yeah. And, you know, those, you know, generally have really capable four wheel drive systems and, you know, good you know suspension systems that are capable of doing some serious off-roading they will yeah they will get you very horribly stuck <laughs> at the point where you run out of talent um because they are better than you are at off yes um yeah. i'm using the general you at this point but even the old like uh the compass and the patriot equipped properly you know just and not even with the like trail rated setup but just their their basic transfer cases um and stuff uh they they would do okay um yeah you know i mean they they were unpleasant vehicles to drive but you know if you wanted to do some off-roading they were shockingly capable yeah um so marketing is this thing though like you're you're creating an aspiration with it so yes um you're showing cars in situations that they never would be in but if you showed them in everyday situations you wouldn't necessarily create the the proper image and cachet because it's all just psychology, you know, psychology and, and manipulation. Um, that's why advertising is done. Uh, so it depends on how they want to sell it, but they've got to position, you know, the Jeep, for example, has to position the renegade as a true Jeep. Cause it, it certainly has picked up all those, those styling cues. Um, so they, they kind of, they're obligated to show it doing those Jeepy things. Uh, because that's what people think of when they go putting a Jeep in their driveway. They don't, they don't say like, yes, I know I'm never going to do that. Uh, or, or maybe they do. They acknowledge it to themselves. Like, yeah, I know. But I'm I never could if I wanted to. Right. It's the, I could, if I wanted to, even though you never will. And you probably actually couldn't like they did in the commercial because you suck at driving in those places. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I don't know that Jeep is, I understand where he's coming from. I'm not sure that I completely agree. I feel like, like you, um, I think that the vehicles actually have the chops that the drivers don't. Um, so, so what is a brand that, uh, it's cars don't, uh, don't match up to the claims. Um, yeah, I mean, that is kind of a, okay. Well, I guess so. Like what are, what are the claims? Like, I mean, certainly Lincoln, I can point at their advertising and just go, I don't know what the hell they're trying to sell. So I can't measure the performance of the quiet cars. luxury, quiet luxury. So yeah, I drive the Lincoln around and I hear Matthew McConaughey whispering in my ear. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, those, but, but Lincoln's in general, like there's nothing exclusive about a Lincoln. Uh, they are fancy Fords. They're not even all that fancy. They don't offer anything unique enough. Even the the Continental, uh, I'm not fully convinced. So I just feel like overall they're trying to build an image uh, and they're doing better with getting product there, but they just, they don't have it yet. Um, well, let's see, if they, if they build the new Navigator with those massive gull wing doors that they had on the concept they showed last year, would that convince you? Um, you know, I would admire the chutzpah. That took. <laughs> absolutely um i have a feeling those doors probably weigh more than a continental yeah that, that's true um that would be worth talking about wouldn't it and then you'd <laughs> see them out there at the mall just like just, you know and the whole family of of uh but they don't bend in the middle like a tesla yeah 
well, I'm just I'm just picturing, you know, like I see enough of the navigators with the fair, failed air suspension. Those gold wing doors a few <laughs> years in, that's going to be great. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so Lincoln is one that I just I'm crapping all over their marketing because they're, they're, I just don't think they're they're. Well, it's I'll say advertising, not marketing. They're different, actually. Um, Acura, I I don't know what again. Like I think that that's just another bunch of nonsense. Um, so it's it's less that they're writing yeah, checks that the cars can't yeah, cash. I, I don't know that I've even ever seen or seen or that I've seen an Acura ad anytime recently. Um, so yeah. I'm not even sure what what it is there. You know what kind of message they're trying to get across. That said, you know I mean I, you know. I don't mind their vehicles. No, I like their vehicles. I like driving their vehicles. Yeah. Um, Um, But. uh, I mean, we're pretty immune to it, too. Like that stuff becomes wallpaper for us. Uh, That's true. I mean, you know, I'm a cord cutter, you know, so, you know, we I don't see any I don't see many ads. um, So it's, it's hard, hard for me to judge. Yeah. And I likewise, I live in cord cutting land and um you will be shocked to know that working in advertising makes you want to avoid most forms of advertising <laughs> as much as possible. And you know, the, the worst thing for me is I hate all car ads cause they are all just gibberish. They're just, they're not good. And we're at this place in our culture where uh, traditional car advertising is just such a turnoff to the actual like meat of the car buying market. Uh, even me, like I do not want to see a Mustang or a Camaro doing burnouts and just, just BS uh, I really, I do not care. That is not how I drive the car. That that macho BS swagger. Well, speak for yourself. Just, I, if I, I don't know. If I do, like, I'll have a little bit of a giggle. But it's it's not like, you know, this just reminded me. I think uh, Dodge's campaign overall for their cars and and, and I guess for all their vehicles, uh, I think that's terrible. They focus on being like sinister and super badass and like, you know, evil. And um, that's just not I I don't like it. <laughs> I don't because the cars aren't evil. They're good. Like it's there's there's merit there that they could sell without having to put that like we're so tough kind of yeah. uh, image around it because it's just it's very contrived. Um and and I mean this is this is funny talking about like sort of degrees of contrivance about advertising. So uh, we could do an entire podcast on this. I'm just going to stop. That's true. <laughs> and you know since since we're uh, already running on the long side, uh, we do we do also had one uh, email um, about uh, in car voice assistance, but let's save that one for next week. Okay. Uh, so we'll we'll get back to everybody next week for episode 16. This has been episode. 15 of wheel bearings thanks everybody for listening thanks everybody see you next week save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.